Good morning. Um, we have to admit, don't we, like, worshiping with almost no lights in the cold in a log cabin <laughs> works for me at a completely aesthetic level, right? Because if there was a place, right, if, if we were in those one of the cavernous modern churches, it wouldn't work. But being in a log cabin, it just reminds me of all of the places throughout history when this would have been luxurious, um, a luxurious place for the church to worship. My, my daughters uh, years ago used to read um, the Little House books, right? And when you think of how drafty they were and how people would gather and live there. Um, and part of the reason I'm thinking about that is in so many places in the world, um, this would be warm shelter. Um, and I, I was talking um, with a few people who concluded who said, you know, every road to church today was blocked except for a few. Um, and thinking about how hard it was to get to church, how dark it was once we got here and cold, um, reminds me of those places where it's still difficult for people to get to church. What would it be like if um, we really were at a place where we had nothing, Um, where we weren't sure it was safe to be meeting? It was difficult to get to where we didn't have all of the luxuries and trappings of church. Um, In places where um, the church is still persecuted, of course, this is the case. And it may be a helpful way to think about the holiness of God in this passage to remember the persecuted church at this time because um, when the book of Revelation was written, the church was beginning to experience persecution again. Some of the churches were quite wealthy and had the resources they need, but in other parts of the empire, uh, you were taking your life in your own hands if you were to worship. Um, It was a dangerous difficult, complicated thing to be a follower of Jesus then. And it still is now for many people. So let me pray for us, remembering our brothers and sisters for whom it is still difficult. Um, And then let's engage this text. Lord, wherever the church worships today, knowing that we're at the kind of back end of Sunday globally, um, whether in grand cathedrals, Um, whether uh, it's just a family um, huddled together, worshiping quietly for fear that their neighbors will hear, Um, whether we do so um, where it's exhaustingly hot or bitterly cold. We remember you, we honor you, and we desire to follow you. So, Lord, in this log cabin, remembering people for whom centuries uh, worshipped you in structures very much like this, if even humbler, and with less amenities. Uh, Thank you for preserving the church. Thank you for preserving us. And then um, encourage our brothers and sisters, we pray, even as we gather here to celebrate you, to gather before your word, um, and to take communion together. Amen. Amen. Um, Obviously, the storm that passed Thursday, Friday, had significant, powerful impact on many of you. Um, Some of you are still without power. Roads are still blocked. And it's at moments like that, I think, that we really remember actually how um, small and frail we are. If you are still without power, um, you know what it's like to sit and realize when the sun goes down, we're kind of done for the day. Um, To realize how much we depend on heat and light. For some of us, the panic of, I can't access the internet. I'm cut off. Um, And for people for whom they really are cut off and are dependent on electricity, for medical supplies, and other things. Remind us, in spite of the immense control we have, 
over our environment. Our ability to send people off into space and to the deepest depths of the ocean, right, to create untold destruction should we choose to and to rescue people who are sick and dying, we're still finite and limited. The illusion of our control is actually very thin. And all it takes is about an 8 to 12 hour storm and we're reduced to almost sitting in the dark and not being sure what to do. And I think if you have that perspective, you have a small way to enter into the question of what does the holiness of God look like? Um, In part because the holiness of God should not be reduced to just his goodness, but it's everything that separates him from the limited, powerless people we actually are. It's his complete otherness, it's complete difference. And this is good news for us, and it was good news to the readers of John's apocalypse, of his revelation. Because if you can imagine being a persecuted minority in an empire that did not like you, that did not approve of you, that did not want you there, where you might have achieved some levels of acceptance in certain parts of the empire, but in many other parts... They just wish you would go away. Think of how chapter 4 would have been a ray of hope because the entire book of Revelation is actually designed to help people experience difficulty and persecution have faith that God is in control, that God is really in charge, that God will not be defeated but will actually triumph, and therefore we are not to lose hope. All of the images, all of the craziness that's part of Revelation, if you've ever read it, the... um, are designed to communicate that. And if you pay attention, it can encourage us too. So John's worshiping in Patmos. He's actually in exile. He's in political exile on Patmos. He has a vision and Jesus appears and said, I'm the faithful witness. I'm the first and the last. I'm the firstborn from among the dead. I have a word for my people, John. Write this down. And so John writes down seven letters to the seven churches, which occupy chapters two and three. And then it picks up with where um, Jillian read for us, right? After this, I looked, and suddenly he's caught up. There before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. The first thing that John sees in this vision is a throne and someone sitting on it. And what's, I think, fascinating is the throne completely dominates his vision, right? When he gets to the place where he is, the only thing that occupies his vision that completely covers the horizon is this throne. And his senses are overwhelmed with grandeur and beauty, right? If you look at verses 2 and 3 and 5 and 6, he sees flashes of light, peals of thunder. The ground is rumbling beneath his feet. And all he can see, all he can hear, and all he can feel, right? All of his senses are caught up in this immense 
vision of the throne of God. Jewish listeners who were hearing, right, about lightning, peals of thunder, rumblings, would immediately have started thinking about Exodus, in particular when God revealed himself on Sinai, right? They would have known when you have rumblings of uh, earthquakes and lightning and flashes of thunder, what you have is God revealing himself. Um, And John's overwhelmed, it seems, with how... um, all-encompassing and all-embracing this vision is. Have you ever been to um, Niagara Falls? Yeah. And stood at the base of the falls? And it's not just visual, right? It's not just all this water, but you can feel the water rumbling in your body because of how heavy and how weighty it is. And, you can, and if you get close enough, it kind of um, obliterates the noise around you, right? It's an all-consuming experience. Similarly, um, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, or stood at the foot of the Rockies and you see it stretch up above you, uh, or in the case of the canyon, stretch out below you, um, it catches your breath, doesn't it? Um, there's, it's almost impossible to focus on anything else around you for a few minutes. I mean, other than if you have small children and you're like, don't run to the edge. But beyond that, it just captures you. Or for other people, it's going to the ocean and just seeing its immensity and hearing the roll of the waves. Uh, for some folk, probably not us, we're a little jaded, um, they have that experience where they go to Times Square at night, right? And the flashing of the lights and the noise and the people, and they just get caught up in it. That's a little bit of John's experience, and it's so vast, you're, you're struck to silence. At best, you gasp out a little worship. Oh, wow. And John seems to suggest that the one who sits on the throne is so great and so glorious that he can't even speak of him, right? I saw that there was somebody who was like, it was just light. I, I can't even describe what I saw. It was so profound and amazing. And if you look at it, right, the vision of the throne occupies his, all of his senses. And if you look at the geography, the throne and he who sits on the throne actually centers the vision, right? Because there's... Um, the throne itself, and then seated around the throne, are 24 smaller thrones, um, which are occupied by 24 elders, and then four living creatures um, who are right before the throne. And what's uh, Eugene Peterson, who translated the message and who's written a number of great books, said, in one way, the throne dominates the scene and centers it as well. Right? Just as the uh, sun really centers the solar system, um, the throne centers this picture as well, right? It's the throne and then these, thing, these people and groups around it. Almost as if the throne was the gravitational center of the universe that John wants to describe. Right? Everything orbits around the throne. Everything is held in its place, in its proper orbit around the throne. Everything is described by how close or how far things are from the throne. Now, the throne is a difficult image for us because for the, at least for those of us who grew up here in the United States, because we don't have thrones. Or if we talk about thrones, we're referring to something far less majestic, right? Far more pedestrian than what we're thinking here. But um, if you grew up in England, um, when you say the throne, you aren't talking just about a chair. You're talking about the accumulated weight and history, dignity, majesty, and power 
of the rulers who sit on the throne, right? It's a substitution for that. It's a representation of all that the country is and all the authority and power that it has. And for John, he seems to say, if you understand God's holiness, then you understand that God and his existence organizes and orders the entire universe, right? Because when John has this vision, it's so clear to him how small he is and how insignificant he is compared to what he sees. And what he sees is so different from everything that he knows. He's reduced to, I just saw light. I felt rumbling. I... I heard thunder and there were these things I cannot even describe. I'm forced to describe them like they had eyes and I don't know. They were like animals. and um, It's so far different than his limited experience as a person on the island of Patmos in political exile. And that's good news for us. right? And that's part of the holiness of God. When we speak in scripture of God's holiness, in part what we're saying is he's different from us. He's different from us, not just in type, but in order of magnitude. That at our very best, we can only get a glimpse of who he is and what he's about. And often we reduce that, I think, to God's holy, we're not, therefore he's angry at us. And his holy goodness is certainly part of that. But I want to suggest that God's holiness suggests that Every aspect of God is far bigger, far greater than we could ever ask or imagine to be described to us. God's love is holy. He loves us in ways that we cannot possibly yet comprehend. Far deeper and greater and more persistent and longing than we could ever be. He's far more powerful than we could ever imagine. He's far more consistent and wise than we could ever hope. God's holiness is just means he's so much bigger than we can hope. And if you believe then he's the gravitational center to the universe, then it means we don't need to live eccentrically, right? Lurching from trend to trend, fad to fad, whim to whim, pushed around by whether it's weather uh, or a political climate, our physical experience, our emotional health, but actually God anchors us solidly in the universe. What's the center that's grounding you right now? Consider the last 30 days of your life. What's the vision that's actually driving your activity, your hopes, aspirations, your fears, your desires? For some of us, it's just very pragmatic. I need to get through the next day, right? We have have small pragmatic goals because of the issues that we're facing. For others of us, it's, um, I need a different job. I need a different uh, relationship. I need to accomplish this at work. What's the vision that anchors the way you're making decisions of your life? In part, God's holiness suggests if we would allow God to hold that place, it would actually put everything else in the proper order. They wouldn't cease to exist. They would just orbit the proper distance from the center of the life that we want to live. What I find fascinating is not just how the throne centers, right? Because the throne just seems incredibly distant to John for all that it fills the horizon for him. But the throne and he who is seated on the throne defines a sense of purpose for John. Look again at the back half of uh, verse 6 but uh, and going forward to verse 8. 
In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When you see God's holiness, when you see his power and majesty, you're initially left speechless, except, like I said, sometimes you get a little uttered squeak. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Look at that, right? Those are, I want to suggest that those are pure acts of worship, right? When you, when you squeak out, I know, that's amazing. Those are spontaneous, pure acts of worship. Children do it, adults do it. Pagans do it, Christians do it. Even atheists, when confronted by something beautiful, whether they're holding a newborn child or standing at the grandeur of something beyond what they can imagine, we squeak out of, wow. And um, for John, what he begins to realize is when he sees who God is, he begins to hear how all of creation is ordered to begin to worship God. The four living creatures who are gathered before God are these... um, weirdly described animal-like beings. And I will say, um, hundreds of trees have died while commentators have tried to figure out what they are. Um, Perhaps they're identifiable with the cherubim or seraphim in Ezekiel 1 or Isaiah 6, but I thought one commentator had it about right when he said, you know, what's interesting is they really represent the strongest and mightiest, most noble of all the birds, right? The, the, the most strongest normally domesticated animal that John would have been familiar with, the ox, um, the powerful wild beasts uh, like a lion, um, and then really the head of all creation, right? The, the final act of creation, humanity. The strongest, best, wisest, most powerful of all of creation seem to be summed up there in those animals, in those four living creatures. And... Um, being covered with eyes, I want to suggest, is less a physiological thing because I, I don't know how you're covered with eyes all around. It, it sounds awkward. Um, but what I want to suggest is they see everything, right? All creation is a witness to who God is. And the initial response that creation has to the holiness of God is actually acknowledging his holiness, right? What do they proclaim and witness about? They proclaim God's holiness, holy, holy, holy. It's repeated three times for emphasis. They express his power. You are the Lord God Almighty. And they express his self-existence, right? You are the one who is, who was, and is to come. I want to suggest that creation finds its pleasure and its purpose, its desire and destiny in God, right? All of the world exists to worship, to acknowledge that God is not part of the created order. He made it, he rules it, and he sustains it. That's why, in fact, beauty is an important way of worshiping God. Why the Christian church throughout history has sponsored art and music and literature. Why we should care about aesthetics, not as um, an unnecessary expense, but actually as something which is profoundly indicative of calling all of creation to worship the God that we worship. Um, Are you familiar with the book The Wind in the Willows? Wind in the Willows, if you've never read it, it's it's lovely, it's lyrical. um, And about the middle of the book, Rat and Mole um, are on a little boat ride, and I think they capture this experience so well. 
um, they have an experience of um, Pan because right, it's animal, so it's um, the god Pan. But listen to how they respond, and I think it suggests how we might respond. Then suddenly Mole felt a great awe fall upon him, um, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. There was no panic, terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that smote and held him, and without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side, cowed, stricken, and trembling violently. And still, there was utter silence in the populous bird-haunted branches around them, and still the light grew and grew. Perhaps he would never have dared raise his eyes, but that though the piping was now hushed, the call and the summons still seemed to dominate, imperious. He might not refuse were death himself waiting to strike him instantly, once he had looked with mortal eye on things rightly kept hidden. Trembling, he obeyed and raised his humble head, and there in that other clearness of the eminent dawn, while nature flushed with the fullness of incredible color, seemed to hold her breath for the event, he looked in the eyes of the friend and helper. Rat! He found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured Rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never, and yet, and yet, O oh, Mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. Why I love that is... When we encounter the holiness of God, part of what I think Graham, Kenneth Graham captured and what Paul, uh, John captures in this verse is that while it's incredibly distancing, the initial response of creation is to lean in and say, I want that. I want to be near that. I want to be close to that. The initial response to the holiness of God is to actually draw near to it and to worship. And so often we talk about holiness as something which pushes us away and separates us from God, but the right response, the desired response is to be like rat and mole and to say, are you afraid? Oh, how could I ever be afraid? But yes, I am afraid, and I'm deeply in love, and I'm drawn in, and I want to worship. The throne of God, the holiness of God, invites us to recognize how different he is and then pulls us in to be closer to him. And I think it's partially that being pulled in, drawn into that gravitational well, right, um, of the throne that then motivates what happens next in chapter, in, in chapter 4, verses 9 and following. Whenever the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who uh, lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Um, who are these 24 elders? Again, four have died as commentators have gone back and forth on this one. They could be the you know, angelic counterparts of the 12 apostles and 12 tribes, or maybe the 24 priestly and Levitical worship leaders. But whatever and however you parse out who they are, they clearly represent the people of God worshiping, 
right? They clearly represent some way of saying the gathered church worships God. And what I find fascinating is whenever the four living creatures worship, they're drawn into worship as well. And when do the four living creatures worship? Day and night. They never stop saying, right? So constantly the 24 elders are singing the song, throwing down their uh, crowns, um, and saying this. Now, I'm not sure how you throw down your crown constantly, right? It, it, again, awkward image, but what it seems right is a continual, constant act of worship. And they sing this really subversive, anti-imperial song, right? You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Um, the lines, you are worthy, our Lord and God, would have been very familiar to anybody in the Roman Empire. Because this was the song you sang to the emperor when the, he would walk in the room. right? If you grew up in America, we all know, nobody knows the words, right? But if you hear the theme, right? you know the president is about to walk in the room, or at least a parody of the president is about to walk in the room. Right? I mean, if you're watching a, a a comedy show. But we use that to indicate the president is about to enter. And similarly, when the emperor would enter a room, you would hear people start to sing, you are worthy, our Lord and God. And then what Paul, what John says, I keep apologize. What John says is our Lord in God is not the one who sits on a throne in Rome. Our Lord in God is far different than that. Our Lord in God is the one who created all things and by his will, they were created and have their being. Right? It's this incredible, subversive, anti-imperial thing to remind the people who are there, we have one God. We have one Lord. We have one person who's in control who's so wholly different from us that he's trustworthy and kind and loving and true. And as a result, they throw down their crowns. Right? They acknowledge um, that they're subordinate to him because if you were a conquered king by the Roman Empire— what, you would be, what would happen to you is you would wear your crown, you'd be led in a victory parade through the streets of Rome, and you'd be expected to lay your crown down in front of the Roman emperor to say, I may have a crown, but it's nothing like yours. I may have thought I was in charge, but clearly you're in charge. I thought I was powerful, but I'm not powerful. They offer up their glory to the emperor, and similarly, Revelation says, if you see how holy God is, how majestic, how different he is, then we offer up our glory to God as well. What treasures, dreams, or aspirations do we need to let go of that we need to offer to him? I want to suggest that our crowns tend to be thin and paltry compared to God's glory, but quite costly to us. I've told the story before, I suspect, but um, when I was coming on staff with InterVarsity, my parents really struggled with it. Uh, they're good Christians, been involved in Christian leadership almost since high school. Um, but the idea of trusting their eldest son, their beloved son, uh, to fundraising and to the church was terrifying to them. And so we battled it out over many years. And we've no, I've told some of that story before, but I remember talking with my mom several years later after I'd gone on staff. We've been talking about this for 10 years now. Um, and I'd been on staff for four or five years, and I was having lunch with her. Uh, my dad was off at a church prayer meeting, and she said, you know, you've been the cause of more arguments between your father and I than any other single thing in our marriage. (laughs) 
And I wanted to go like, what, do I get an award for that or is a certificate? But she said, you know, it was your decision to go on staff with InterVarsity. We argued about that all the time and never had peace about it. Now, this is 10 years into the conversation when I first introduced the idea. So after 10 years, um, you can kind of be done being polite and you can just be clear. And so I said, you know, Mom, um, I don't think you would have taken God's peace if he offered it to you on a silver platter. And my mom was so offended, rightly so. Right? What do you mean? And she said, and I said, you know, what you've described to me is that you used to feel like God was saying, do you love me more or do you love Greg more? If you love me more, then you'll let me choose what I'm going to do with your son. And if you love Greg more, um, you're going to continue to try to control what he does. And, right, my parents were having that Genesis 22 experience of Abraham being told, take your son, your only son your beloved son, and bring him up on the mountain. And what will you do? And for me, what I want to say is, it was an incredibly humbling thing to recognize that I may have been the greatest impediment to my parents' discipleship than any other thing in the world. What they were really struggling with is, do I love my son more or do I love God more? And they were really wrestling with it. It was horrifying to me and humbling to me at the same time. And yet... Anybody who knows me know I am nothing like God at all. I'm not worthy of worship or wisdom or glory or honor and thanks. Um, And yet the things that we value seem so precious and so important to us when they're right in front of us. And what the holiness of God calls us to do is to lift up our eyes and to see him and to put things in proper perspective. I'm lovable enough for my parents. I'm praiseworthy enough mostly, though they're Chinese, so not so much, uh, for my parents. Um, I'm a person made in God's image and therefore have a certain amount of dignity, but I should not be confused in their life with God. And if they can, and as they, praise God, ordered their relationship with me and with God rightly, Suddenly, they were free to love me and to follow God in new ways for them. It was a discipleship moment for them as well. When we see things rightly, we're able to draw near. Let me end with one last story that I think captures this. Because I think, again, when we think about the Holy God, it's true. He's far purer than we will ever be. And so frequently, as we focus on the cross, um, we think about how distant we are. But the entire point of our faith is to remind us that God's goodness should draw us in magnetically. It should draw us in like moths to a flame. It should draw us in to worship him. Um, I think of a story that Arun Gandhi, the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, used to tell. Um, he, spelt, he spent his um, teenage years in South Africa and where his, with his father would lead um, the campaign for civil rights. Um, and shortly after he learned to drive, um, Arun's father asked him if he would drive him downtown to a lawyer's office for a strategy meeting around ending apartheid and then take the car um, in for repair. And he said, you can do anything you want with the time between the time you drop me off and the time you are done, but pick me up at 6 p.m. sharp. And so like any teenager with a new license and a license to drive, um, Arun jumped at the chance and drove into the big city, dropped his dad off, and then he went to a, then he went to a movie theater. And the first picture was a Western that was so entertaining that he sat through the double feature, and he completely lost track of time. Um, when he walked out 
he realized it was getting dark, and he panicked, wondering if the garage had now closed. He dashed there and thankfully found it still open, retrieved the car, and then drove as fast as he could to the lawyer's office and got there at 6.30. And he saw his dad waiting on the curb. Aware of how much his dad really cared about punctuality, Arun spun a story about the problems the garage had encountered repairing the car. You know, oh, we're lucky they finished it in time, Dad. You know, I had to wait for almost an hour, which is why I'm late. Arun's dad, though, had called the garage at 5 p.m. <laughs> to check on the progress and learn that the car was already done. So he got in the car, let his son drive beyond the city limits, then he asked Arun to pull over to the side of the road. And he said that, I called the garage. The car was done an hour and a half before you picked me up. And I know you were lying. And this is then what he said, I am deeply troubled. What would cause my son to lie to me? How have I failed as a father that my son would not trust me with the truth? I want to reflect on this. And so his father got out of the car and walked the rest of the way home asking Arun to drive behind him so the car's headlights would illuminate um, the country road as they walked back home. Because it, they lived some distance from the city, it took six hours for him to walk, head down, deep in thought, and Arun, Arun drove the entire way behind him. <clears throat> um, Philip Yancey recounts the story of Arun, and he says, when I heard Arun tell that story, I wondered if he might use it as an example of a guilt trip Right, a manipulative way for the father to make his son wallow in regret. And he said, Arun did not see it that way at all. Even in his teens, he respected his father as a great leader who modeled integrity and justice. When his father said he must reflect on how he had failed as a father, he meant it sincerely. And Arun was stricken to the core. More than anything else, he wanted to please his father and to emulate him. And the lie pointed out how far he had to grow. After that, said Arun, I never told another lie to my father. When you encounter holiness, it's not distancing. You're aware of the distance, but the magnetic, compelling nature of it causes you to see what you lack and then to desire it for yourself. And for Arun Gandhi, as well as for Rat and Mole in um, The Wind and the Willows, when they encounter holiness, the goal was, I want to lean in and worship. I want to lean in and become more like that. I want more of that and less of what holds me back. In fact, that's why we come to celebrate communion. Because we would be completely unable to draw near and to press in and to become more like that, save for what God in his holy love demonstrates for us on the cross. Choosing to die in our place and on our behalf and make a way for us to allow us to draw close and not be destroyed by God's holiness, but instead transformed by it. And slowly, over time, in his own patience, to be made Christ-like at last. That's why I thought the hymn was perfect, right? Oh, Master, let me walk with thee. Thee is a, a word that we associate with age and distance, but actually, in English, thee was the intimate word. You only said thee to people who knew you and who loved you, and who you knew you were accepted by. If you read Shakespeare, you'll find people saying, do not thee me, right? Do not, you need to use the word you, which was the distant formal language. Thee 
was a word of intimacy. He used it for family and for friends. Oh, Master, let us walk with thee. Let us walk closely with you because you know us, you've called us, and in spite of your holiness, you draw us in. Let me pray. Lord, help us see um, who you are so that we could worship you rightly, love you closely, and then draw near to you. Thank you for calling us friend and child. Thank you for making a way. Amen.